episode 14, The Blessing of Elizabeth, Introduction. Elizabeth in the Bible was the wife of a priest named Zechariah. She was also a cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth and Zechariah are called righteous and blameless, people who walked in all the commandments of the Lord. Elizabeth was barren. She was unable to have children. When Elizabeth is first mentioned in the Bible, she is an old woman, or as Luke puts it, advanced in years. This could mean anything from late middle age to old age. In any case, she was past childbearing age. When Zechariah was in the temple offering incense to the Lord, the angel Gabriel appeared to him saying that he and Elizabeth would soon be parents. They were to name the baby John. This baby would grow up to be great before the Lord and bring joy and gladness to them as well as to many other people. Zechariah was doubtful because of his wife's age and the fact that he was himself old. So Gabriel, the same angel who appeared later to Mary, told Zechariah that he would be unable to speak until the prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of John. And the story begins. Act 1. The Angel's Message Luke 1 outlined Elizabeth's family background. She was descendant from a long line of priests. Luke made this clear right at the beginning of his gospel because he wanted to say loud and clear that John and Jesus both came from a respectable, well-connected family. He began by pointing out that not one, but both John's parents came from a priestly family and that Elizabeth's father was a priest. This is what is meant by daughter of Aaron. Despite her impeccable family background, Elizabeth was barren. In those days, childlessness was not just a misfortune, it was a disgrace. But in Elizabeth's case, this could hardly be so, since her reputation was blameless. Instead, there had to be some other reason. Could it be like the great foremother Sarah and the childless Hannah? She remained barren because God had a greater plan for her. Zechariah had been chosen by Lot to enter the sanctuary of the Temple of Jerusalem and offer incense as part of the daily worship at the temple. Only the priests who had been chosen by random Lot and therefore by God's hand could enter the sanctuary. It was a pivotal moment for Zechariah. There were about 8,000 priests at that time, so any priest could only expect to offer sacrifice once or twice in his lifetime. 
Now it was Zachariah's turn. At about 3 p.m. on this particular day, he stepped forward into the sanctuary to offer incense. The people waited outside as they did the other priests. At that moment, an angel appeared at the right side of the altar in front of Zechariah. Why the right hand side? Because a favorite courtier or royal family member always took this position in a royal throne room. But an angel? What exactly does that mean? It's hard to tell, but the biblical writers seem to use the word to show that a human being had received a message from God. Our skeptical, must-have-proof world finds it hard to understand, but we would probably say the same thing in a different way, that a deep conviction of purpose settled on the person involved, guiding them towards a particular course of action. The angel spoke. It reassured the terrified Zechariah, telling him not to be afraid. Then it gave him momentous news. His wife, Elizabeth, would conceive and have a son. Since the hand of God is clearly evident in what is happening, we know that this will be no ordinary child. The angel was specific. The child would have four characteristics. He would be great in the sight of God. He would drink no wine and thus live the ascetic life of a Nazarene, setting him apart from ordinary people. He would be filled with the Spirit from his conception. He would prepare for the Messiah and thus be a Catholic between Israel and God. Act 2. Zachariah's Response What was Zachariah's response? It's hard to believe, but Zachariah cribbled. He expressed doubts that this could happen. He discreetly implied that he was no longer capable of sexual intercourse and that his wife had ceased menstruating. There was genuine confusion on his part here, but there was also the sense that he was objecting as he asked for a sign just as the great forefather Abraham did, and Gideon, and Hezekiah. The angel responded by naming itself, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Only the highest officials in an oriental royal court stood in the presence of the king. Protocol demanded that most people bow or prostrate themselves. So Gabriel was telling Zechariah he had committed an offense in not believing the message. As punishment, Zechariah was reduced to silence, probably becoming both deaf and mute. In one way, it was a reassuring miracle, but in another, it was a punishment, one that would last until the birth of the child set him free. 
when Zechariah came out of the temple, he was unable to speak. This was puzzling for the people around him. Why couldn't he speak? Clearly something momentous must have happened. The priests and people interpreted his silence as proof that he had some profound religious experience, probably a vision. But Zechariah could not tell them of his experience. Frustrated by his inability to speak, he tried to explain by signing. This had limited success. He finished out his allotted service, then headed home. Act 3. Elizabeth Pleases God Zechariah had doubted, but Elizabeth had not. And now she, not her unfortunate husband, moves into the spotlight. Home at last, Zechariah found comfort in the arms of his wife. One thing led to another, and she became pregnant. To her surprise and the amazement of her family and friends, when she realized she was pregnant, she went into seclusion. This meant she did not leave her house for any reason, nor receive any visitors. She stayed like this, leading a calm and quiet life, until her pregnancy became physically obvious to all who saw her. Meanwhile, the young Galilean woman Mary had been betrothed to Joseph of Nazareth with a formal witness agreement legally binding between the families of the young people and a bride price paid to Mary's family. It was suspected that the formal marriage would take place about a year later when Mary would be taken to the home to Joseph's family to live. But what really happened here? We tend to blot out the reality of the situation. A young girl was pregnant. Her fiancé knew he was not the father, yet the bride price had been paid. In a Middle Eastern rural community at the time, this sort of situation could easily result in an honor killing of the young girl by her fiancé's family. Something else to consider here is that Mary's visit to Elizabeth about a hundred miles away in Judea may have been a desperate attempt by her family to save her from this fate, to get her out of the way until some solution had been worked out. Leaving Galilee and traveling south, Mary duly arrived at Elizabeth's house in Judea after a journey of about three or four days. At first glance, this might seem like a commonplace event as two kinswomen, both pregnant, meet each other. But Luke was making oblique references to Old Testament precedents alerting us to a deeper meaning in Elizabeth's story. Take, for instance, Hannah's story in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 
in Judges 13 and 2 about a couple like Elizabeth and Zechariah unable to have children. And then there's Sarah's story in Genesis 18:11, which describes an elderly couple who thought they would never have a child. Act 4. The Songs of Elizabeth and Mary. The two pregnant women met, and at that moment, Elizabeth's unborn baby responded by suddenly moving and kicking in her womb. 28 weeks, the end of a woman's second trimester, is a normal time to expect an unborn baby to kick in the womb. And this may have well been the first time Elizabeth's unborn baby moved, an exciting moment for any mother. So she took this sudden moment at this particular moment as a sign. In a moment of penetrating spiritual clarity, Elizabeth recognized she was being visited by the mother of the expected Messiah. She pronounced a blessing on the younger woman. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Mary responded with the words of the song called Magnificat. Act 5. Elizabeth gives birth to John. It is not clear from the text whether Elizabeth had the help of her young kinswoman when she gave birth to her baby. Common sense and the lapse of time would suggest she did. Elizabeth would certainly have been surrounded by loving, concerned relatives and friends, especially since her advanced age must have made it a difficult birth. Something to note, in ancient times, women hunched themselves over a hole, hollowed in the ground, standing on bricks or stones placed at either side. They gave birth in a squatting position, with relatives and friends taking turns to support them under the arms. In the Roman world, there were special birthing chairs with a U-shaped hole in the seat and supports for the feet and back. But we have no way of knowing whether this latest medical technology had reached Roman-era Jerusalem. Elizabeth had a son, and all her friends and relatives were overjoyed for her. She seems to have recovered well from the birth itself, because eight days afterwards, she was up and around, ready to attend the circumcision of her son. A baby was usually named on the day of his circumcision, 
And a common practice at this time was to name a first son after his grandfather. In this case, however, Elizabeth's extended family seemed to have decided that the baby would be called Zachariah after his stricken father. But Elizabeth stepped right in and briskly contradicted them. Her son's name was to be John, she said. Everyone disagreed with her pointing out that there was no family precedent for the name John, but Elizabeth stood her ground. She insisted so fiercely that, aspirated, the family members turned to Zachariah for support. Since he could not speak, he asked for a writing tablet, a small wooden towel with a wax surface. With a stylish, he scratched a single sentence. His name is John. Act 6. Zachariah speaks immediately to the amazement of the onlookers. He regained the use of his speech and hearing. A skeptic no more. His first words were in praise of God. The sound of his voice silenced even the most talkative of his neighbors. They were in awe and not a little frightened by what they were witnessing. Like neighbors everywhere, they could not wait to pass on the story of what had happened and discuss its meaning. The son of Elizabeth and Zechariah must certainly be destined for greatness. The hand of God was with him, and he would be different and unique. Now, the name John seemed appropriate, since without any family precedent, it gave him an identity of his own that had nothing to do with the past. Their assumption was cemented by the words Zechariah now spoke. This little child would one day be a prophet of the Most High, he said, preparing the way for the Messiah. This scene is the last we see of Elizabeth. By the standards of the time, she was already elderly, and she may not have lived to see her son grow to manhood. The End